0: It is certainly good to be with you tonight and to open our Bibles and to study together. I invite you to open to the very last book of the New Testament, a book that we have looked at with some uh, extensiveness over the last couple of lessons. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, we'll begin our study in just a moment as we continue to think about time coming to an end. Making sure that we are prepared and ready for the end of this world. We've established over the course of the last couple of lessons that death is appointed unto men once, but after that is the judgment. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. And that's a reminder for us to make sure that we are living correctly and righteously and humbly in service to our God so that we can be prepared for that particular day that will come. As we said last night, we do not know the day or the hour. Only the Father knows that, and we are not to be predictors, but we are to be preparers. And so we need to appreciate that. Thank you for being here tonight. As I've said over the course of these last couple of days, I'm grateful to the shepherds here for the invitation to be with you. And I hope that good will come from the efforts that we put forth. And I say we because it's not just me as the speaker. And I appreciate Brother Shane leading us in prayer, recognizing that I'm just simply the spokesman who is sharing God's message. But you have the responsibility and the great privilege of being able to share these messages with others. And as Peter would say, defend yourself and prepare yourself to give an answer for the hope that is in you. There are a number of you that tonight have driven a a long distance. Some of you have flown across the country to be here. Well, okay, maybe you didn't fly across the country to be here. But you are here and we are grateful for your presence. And you are an encouragement to me and an encouragement to the brethren here, I am confident. We are talking tonight about the subject of Armageddon. And I referenced it very briefly last night. But I want to spend a few moments talking about Armageddon this evening, I want to start with the origin, where it comes from. I want us to look at some notes regarding this particular text here in Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 16. I want us to do a description of what Armageddon would look like, at least as pictured or described by those who believe in a literal, physical battle or war in this particular world. And then I want us to conclude with Armageddon and us and what it means for us and why this particular subject is so very important I want us to start with the origin and it's interesting that oftentimes terms or concepts that are found in the Bible only one or two or three times end up becoming that which explodes to be to to befuddle us and to otherwise Describe things that the world seems to grasp onto. So you may find it a surprise that the concept or the word or the term Armageddon is found only one time in God's Word. And it happens here in Revelation chapter 16. And drop down to about verse 15 of Revelation chapter 16. And just read me two verses. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Now that's a very common description that Jesus would use, or that Paul, the epistle writer, would use to reference the coming of the Savior. Blessed is he who watches, that's us, and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. You may have a footnote in your Bible that has the idea of Megiddo or the mountain of Megiddo with it. If you're reading from the American Standard Version, and I doubt that there's anyone reading from the ASV tonight, you'll find the term that is used is Har harmageddon. And it literally is the idea of two different words because John, here in this particular text, notes the Hebrew nature of the word in that even though he's writing in Greek language, he's referencing back to the ancient language of Hebrew. And he suggests here that the word Armageddon here is a combination of two different places or two different words. The word Har is the word mountain and the word Megiddo or Megiddo is a geographic location noted some 12 times in the Old Testament. So even though Armageddon is only mentioned once in the Bible, the idea of Megiddo, the mountain of this place where a battle would take place, is mentioned a dozen times in the Bible or so. We're going to look at that as we progress through our study together tonight, but I simply wanted to point those particular facts out by way of introduction so that we understand where we're talking about, where it comes from, and that if someone does come to you at some point and say, well, the Bible is filled with references to Armageddon, you could say, well, can you show me the different references to Armageddon? And, and you can only find one. Doesn't mean it is unimportant. But it may be that it's misunderstood, and that's what the confusion we're trying to clear up tonight. So I want to look at some notes regarding the study of the Revelation text. Understanding how and why Revelation was written is important to understanding this particular text. That's true in every text in the book of Revelation. And so the point that I'm trying to make here simply is this, that we have to make sure that just like Sunday and Monday and now night, Uh, night three, Tuesday, that we take things that are supposed to be literal, literally, and take things that are figurative to be taken in figurative form. And so we've got to appreciate that this literature that is apocalyptic is by its very nature symbolic. In fact, if you were looking at a literal word-for-word translation When you find the word revelation, it's the idea of an apocalypse or apocalyptic. And the Greek word that is used there in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 is a word that is translated into us as this revelation of Jesus Christ. So, we may be uncomfortable talking about apocalyptic literature But there is a nature of that in the scripture itself where it is symbolic by its very nature. It is the idea of making some sort of an appearance or some sort of revealing or some sort of, shall we say, revelation. So the book of revelation is a book of revealings. It's a book of appearing. It's almost as if God says, Come here and take a look. I'm going to pull the curtains back and let you see a little bit more into the mysteries that are associated with me, with my home, and with the things that are necessary in order to do what is right. In fact, we prayed tonight, as our brother Shane led us in prayer, that we would do the things that would please our God, would educate others, and encourage each other in our service together. And we did so because... God's Word has been revealed to us in a number of different places from Genesis to Revelation. Now, often, it is done so in mysterious or what we might call coded fashion. And I put that in quotes because I think that's an interesting way of thinking about it. The point being, if you're trying to get a message across to someone else, you may want to make it clear for them, but you may also... Given the circumstances and given the culture and given the characteristics of the time in which you are talking, you may want to share some ambiguity in that message. Let me give you a case in point that there are those who may remember their history of Navajo talkers in the 20th century, in the middle part of the 20th century, and in World War II and in other wars that have existed. You had coded messages that were sent from the front line to the headquarters and vice versa. And the whole point being, we want to make sure that the enemy doesn't get that message. And so you would talk in different languages or different codes. And in an era, 2,000 years ago, in which the book of Revelation was delivered to early Christians, there was certainly an enemy Politically and socially that they had to deal with. And so it seems as if this is an opportunity to make sure that that message gets across in the appropriate fashion without it being maybe intercepted by others. And so as with all texts that are biblical in nature, it is, it seems to me, vital to remember the original recipients and so, there's two aspects of everything that we look at in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And this is an important fact, I think, not just for a study of apocalyptic literature, but of all biblical literature. And one of those observations is simply that books of the Bible need to be interpreted, interpreted as pertinent to their times, and that if it's only pertinent to their times, is irresponsible. What do I mean by that? Bible books interpreted only as pertinent to their times is irresponsible. That is, if we say, well, this was a text that only had an impact 2,000 years ago, or 2,400 years ago, or 3,000 years ago, that's an irresponsible motive for us and motivation for us, wherein we no longer get anything out of that. So we look at these books. And for example, Romans 15 verse 4 comes to mind where it says the things that were written before were written for our learning, for our education, for our comfort, for our consolation. And so the books of the Bible are written so that we can benefit from them. But they also had to have had a benefit for those who lived years ago, which brings us to the second observation. That is biblical books interpreted only as pertinent to our times is unfair and it seems to me that this is especially true with the book of revelation and what i mean by that is this there are some who suggest that the book of revelation only impacted the people some two thousand years ago or vice versa that it only impacts us today and we'll talk about russia as an example and i mentioned that last night we'll mention that example again tonight because it seems so powerful in making the point But the point that I'm trying to make simply is this, that the book of Revelation had an impact on the early Christians 2,000 years ago, and the book of Revelation has an impact on us today. We've got to figure out what those dual meanings are about and what they look like. I want to go back now to the book of Revelation chapter 1, and I want us to carefully consider chapter 1, verse 3. This is a simple message That John, by way of the Holy Spirit, delivers to us. And in Revelation chapter 1, go back to verse 1, and we'll read the first three verses here. Where it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. Remember that for just a moment. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. If you like underlining or making notes in your Bible, you might make note of the of the phrase in verse one quickly come to pass, swiftly take place, or shortly take place, and then draw an arrow down to the very tail end of verse 3 where it says, For the time is near. The point that I'm making simply is this, is that John is writing a prophecy. A prophecy can be a prediction of those things that would transpire in the future or simply be a message from God. And so, John is saying, I'm giving you information about things that are important to the divine. And this includes, again, both divine communication and divine prediction. And the third thing that I would point out here, really going back to verses 1 and 3, what I had you underline or otherwise take note of, is that John writes regarding a time that is near. And so... There may be some disagreement, and I wouldn't be overly dogmatic about this particular issue. There is some debate on the dating of the book of Revelation. But the entire book needs to be understood as an encouragement to persecuted Christians of the first century, as well as to Christians who today are persecuted and are otherwise having difficult days. But we've got to understand the impact that it had for them as much as it would have an impact for us today. With that understanding in mind, let us now take a shifting and look at what literal Armageddon would look like. This is not what the scriptures teach. This is what those who believe in premillennialism, as we talked about Sunday evening, or a rapture Monday evening, as we talked about these particular issues, what they would suggest. What is literal Armageddon uh, about? What is involved with it? Let me suggest to you three things about it, and it all deals with the subject of the battle. Because after all, Armageddon is a battle on the mountain. And there are those in the religious world that would suggest or teach there's going to be a literal battle. That at some place in the world, or in the world globally, there will be a destruction of the earth because of a nuclear holocaust, wherein various countries go head-to-head, toe-to-toe in battle to destroy one another. Those that believe this suggest that the battle will follow the rapture and the seven years of that period that we've talked about over the course of the last couple of days. They also suggest that the battle precedes the 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ. Remember we talked about that Sunday afternoon when we talked about premillennialism. The whole point being is that for a thousand years, Jesus will come back and, and live on this earth and reign in physical Jerusalem, set up there in the temple, and there he will be uh, the the sovereign and the power on earth. And the battle, according to many in the uh, beliefs of Armageddon, will involve four major powers Generally, though somewhat there's a disagreement there to include the United States or other Western countries, Russia, China, Europe in a more global sense, and Egypt. And so as I mentioned just a few moments or so ago, literal Armageddon will likely involve some major nuclear war or what some call a nuclear holocaust. And so what would happen if you believe in Armageddon in a literal way, where a literal war or a battle transpires, that eventually, to stop all this, Jesus Christ will return, march on to the battlefield of Armageddon, and he will win the battle and begin that thousand-year reign. Now, to put all this together and to pull it all together... Premillennialists will use largely the book of Revelation. They will also go back to the 70 weeks of the abomination of desolation that Daniel speaks of in Daniel's chapter 7 and 11 while also referencing chapter 2. And then they'll also use a text in Ezekiel 38 and 39. We do not have the time tonight unless we wanted to stay for an additional 35 minutes or 40 minutes to really delve into all of those texts. And I would also suggest that I am not necessarily an expert on these texts. But I do want us to spend just a couple of moments talking about the two chapters in Ezekiel. And we have individuals who are here tonight that are much more familiar with the book of Ezekiel than I am. But I do think that these two chapters are important to really kind of get a hold of. So I invite you to take your Bibles and look over in chapter 38 and 39. They are uh, relatively short chapters. Uh, They represent about 52 verses. We do not have the time to read all of those. But if you just have subtitles in your Bible, you can kind of scan through. And those subtitles, by the way, just as a reference point, are inserted by men who are uninspired, and so sometimes they're good subtitles, and sometimes they're a little bit suspect. But it seems to me that generally speaking, in most English translations, that this is something that you can depend on. For example, in my Bible, in chapter 38, it talks about Gog and its allies attacking Israel. And then in chapter 39, we see a destruction of Gog's Uh, armies and then the burial of Gog in the latter part of chapter 39 we say are you talking a foreign language now talking about Gog and Magog and talking about things that make no sense to me let's try to make a little bit of sense out of it over the course of the next four or five minutes Ezekiel here references these two characters Gog and Magog well what are they all about some conclude that Gog, or these enemies, these these armies, are referencing some sort of Soviet empire, or now that the Soviet empire is gone, having some sort of thing to do with Russia. And the conflict that is in chapters 38 and 39 is Armageddon. And I want to be respectful in talking about those that would take on this particular point of view or take on this particular opinion, but it seems to me that you really take a lot of stretching to make these things all work, because there are some significant problems with this literal interpretation, and one of those things that we need to appreciate is, first of all, getting Russia out of Ezekiel 38-39. Russia didn't exist, at least as a nation-state. Some 2,000 years ago or 2,700 years ago, give or take a few years when Ezekiel was writing and doing the work that he was doing. You remember that Ezekiel was one of the major prophets, one of the great prophets of God who would carry his message to foreign nations and foreign peoples. And the other thing that we need to appreciate here is that Gog and Magog end up being buried. They end up dead in the text. And if you want to read 38 through 39, it will take you about 15 minutes to read it at a very slow pace. It will take you 5 minutes to read it at a quick pace. Sometime this week I encourage you to do so. But compare that to not chapter 38 but chapter 39 verses 11 and 12. And then compare that to chapter 20 and verse 8 of the book of Revelation. So drop down to chapter 39 where in verse 11 it says, It will come to pass in that day... That I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea. It will obstruct travelers because there they will bury Gog and all the multitude, and they will call it the name of Haman Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Now, again, we don't have the time to go into all the context of everything that Ezekiel seems to be writing here, but compare that. Keep that in your mind for just a couple of moments to what is written in Revelation chapter 20 and in verse 8. It says in chapter 7, When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, But it seems as if there is life to Gog and Magog in Revelation chapter 20. And there is death associated with them in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. And then that brings us then to this broader implication or explanation. And that is when we think about the context of Ezekiel, we are thinking about Babylonian captivity and Babylonian captives. This goes back to one of the elementary points that we made at the outset of our study. We have to always appreciate the text, its context, and what it meant for the people who existed 2,000, 2,500, 2,600 years ago. To argue that Ezekiel was writing about Russia and something that would happen in the 21st century or later would, it seems to me, fly in the face of the irresponsibility of only speaking of texts that deal with things in the future. So someone who is living in Ezekiel's time says, Can you explain to me, Mr. Ezekiel, what chapter 38 and 39 is about? He says, Well, it's about a nation that 2,700 years later will come into existence. And then the average Jew would say, Well, what does that have to do with me? He would say, well, it has nothing to do with you. It just has everything to do with people who are going to live some 27 centuries later. And again, that makes no sense for them to appreciate that. Let me suggest to you in our closing two slides that when we think about Armageddon and us, we've got to think about the notion of what it means to us. It's not that Armageddon is unimportant. Nor is it that Megiddo is an unimportant concept or location. Remember, we're talking about Armageddon, the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo is a centrally important location in biblical times. Turn over, if you would, to the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 35. You may say, wait a minute, where are we going? Second Chronicles, I'm going to peel some of those pages apart. Well, not necessarily, because you are good Bible students who appreciate both the Old and the New Testaments and the language that is used. But in Second Chronicles, chapter 35, we'll make reference to that with King Josiah here in just a moment. We do know that Megiddo served as a key trade route near the northern border of Israel. We know that it's where key battles were fought in that particular region. For example, read with me if you would in verse 20 of chapter 35 in Second Chronicles. And we'll just read a couple of verses and you can come back and read this on your own time. After all this, when Josiah, you remember who Josiah was, he was a king who's most famously known as being a, a good or a decent king, but also being a very young king. Coming to the throne. And it says, When Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came out to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. Drop down to verse 22. Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him, and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And this is where the archers shot, famously, King Josiah. And the king said, Take me, we, for I am severely wounded. And there's a lot of different things to say about that and great lessons to draw from the examples of Josiah and those that were around him. But that's besides the point of our study together this evening. But this is where Josiah was killed. And the people in Ezekiel's day would, it seems to me, When you see references to Megiddo, to Gog, to Magog, to some of these apocalyptic names that we are now familiar with in that uh, lens, they would say, I know about Megiddo. I've heard what happened in Megiddo. Remember what happened in, in Megiddo and on that mountain or near that mountain north of Israel is where the great king Josiah came to the end of his life. Or if you back up, and we won't take the time to read Judges 4 and 5, Judges has become, incidentally, one of my favorite books of the Bible over the last 10 years. And if you haven't read through the 21 chapters of Judges recently, read through it. It is fascinating. There's some challenging stuff in there. There's some things in there that I can't explain fully, but it's a wonderful book about leadership and also about the failure of leadership, more appropriately. And it really can be understood as a great cycle where the people do righteously and then God helps them and then they suffer because they do wrong and then God delivers them such that they do righteously and the cycle starts again and again and again. But Barak and Deborah were both victorious. Guess where? At Megiddo in Judges chapter 5. In short, this is my language, this is my example. Armageddon, the mountain of Megiddo, was to the first century people of Christianity to Jews who would have been familiar with that part of the world what Saratoga or Gettysburg or Iwo Jima is to us. Now, if you don't know what Saratoga, Gettysburg or Iwo Jima is, uh, talk to me afterwards, we'll have a conversation about why you didn't pick up on that sometime between junior high and high school. But most of us understand that those are claims to look at the, the, the difficult things that have happened Iwo Jima is the infamous uh, or the famous picture and victorious picture of Marines on Mount Sarabachi raising the flag and saying, look, we are not going to be defeated against the enemy. Gettysburg is, is seen as the turning point as much as Saratoga of the Civil War and the Revolutionary War, respectively speaking. And so what does it mean for us? Why does all this matter? This is, I believe, the most important Part of our study. You say, yeah, it's the most important because you're wrapping to a close. Well, and, and most joyous part. But this is important for this reason. And that is we've got to appreciate that first century Christians to whom John was writing and John was speaking were in an epic struggle, they were in a fight that was significant. No, they may not have been fighting with bow and arrow or with guns or other sorts of artillery, but they were involved in a political and social and religious war in spite of an empire that was doing everything it could to destroy them, to discourage them, and to dissuade them from serving their divine creator. And so we've got to appreciate that that is the case, that first century Christians were facing this incredible struggle to do what was right. Let me suggest to you, secondly, that limiting Armageddon to Russia or to China or to a nuclear war is, among other things, very unfair to our first century brothers and sisters. Case in point, if, again, our first century individuals, Christians, brethren... We're saying, John, can you help us understand what you're writing about here? He says, well, I could, but it's about something that's going to happen 2,000 years into the future. That's unfair to them. As much as it's unfair to us to say it only has limitations to them. So there is both an immediate application and a more eternal application to be made. And then the final thing that I'll make mention of is this. And that is Armageddon, or the mountain of Megiddo, serves as a reminder of the theme of the Bible, of the theme of Revelation, of everything that we've been talking about over the course of the last couple of days. And that is, God wins, evil loses, even in odds that seem too tough to overcome otherwise. We've got to appreciate that this is a book that speaks to the grandeur of God's greatness and to his ability to make great things happen. I believe, and I would submit to you tonight, that when you think about Armageddon, it is not something that we need to be fearful of in the sense of some nuclear holocaust or otherwise world war. There may be world wars that still are going to be fought. There may be things that will still transpire. There may be difficult days that will still come to pass. And in fact, there likely will. But the fact of the matter is, is we have to make sure that we are ready for when the end comes. And that brings us then to this, and that is, will you be ready? Not for a war on this earth. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood or against powers of this particular world. Paul would say to the church at Ephesus. And we hope that these things will be encouraging as we think about, number one, preparing for the end, ready for the day of our death, but secondly, and preparation for having those conversations with those in the world. And I appreciate our brother Shane leading us in prayer at the outset of our study together this evening by acknowledging that we want God to open those doors Or to allow us, at the very least, to see the doors so that we might open them. Let me conclude with something that is a little bit more personal. And that is, I know that in about 48 hours, I'll be back in Middle Tennessee. And we have someone who is opening the door for us. In fact, someone that's very close to all of you is working very diligently today with someone that is not a Christian. And I'm going to be sitting down, Wendy and I are going to plan to sit down with this individual in just 48 to 72 hours. And have a conversation about her spiritual state. And we won't be talking about the need to prepare for physical battle or a physical Armageddon. We will be talking about the spiritual war, counting the cost and making the choice to do what is right. And so your prayers on our behalf are certainly appreciated in that endeavor. And I hope that tonight maybe we've said something that has sparked your interest or perhaps has caused you to question maybe your literal belief in Armageddon as you have otherwise been taught or thought through the years. And if you want to study these things further, we stand ready to study with you. If you are not a child of God, if you are not ready for that day that is appointed for death for all men, we want to do what we can to encourage you to be baptized, to have your sins washed away. That's not Church of Christ doctrine. That's not my opinion. That's not something that the elders here said, let's find some way to teach people how to become Christians in a creative or new format. It's simply what the scriptures taught and teach. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that does not believe shall be condemned. That's Mark sixteen sixteen. Believe and be baptized is found in virtually every passage in the book of Acts. And in fact, you cannot find an occasion where individuals are saved without that water baptism in the book of Acts, in the history of the early church. If you're ready to make that commitment, or if you need to make some sort of correction in your life, we'd be happy to pray for you and to try to encourage you spiritually. If we can help, let us know while we stand at this time and while we sing.